Hi, my name is Brandon Boat with the Theater of Public Policy. For regular listeners out there, this show will be a little different. Normally, we feature an interview from one of our live shows where a team of improvisers brings it to life through unscripted improv comedy. On November of this year, the people of Minneapolis will go to the ballot box and elect a mayor. We thought it would be helpful if we sat down with several of the candidates and got to know them a little better. We've recorded those interviews and present them to you now. We hope you enjoy them. Our guest today is Tom Hoke. A lifelong resident of Minneapolis, Hoke served as president of the Hennepin Theater Trust until 2016. He is also a past board chair of the Minneapolis Downtown Council and Downtown Improvement District. We asked Hoke about his, how his aim to raise Minneapolis's national profile, his proposal to increase arrest rates for violent crime by 10%, and what he'd tell neighborhood organizations about upzoning and more density. My name is Tane Danger. I'm one of the co-founders and the host of the Theater of Public Policy, along with Brandon Boat, who's here. Hello. And we, uh, four years ago, we talked to some of the candidates who are running for mayor of Minneapolis, and uh, it was very insightful, very uh, informative. Uh, there were 35 then, and so we never even had sort of a notion that we would talk to all of them. This time, there's a much more limited number, and so it actually seemed feasible that we could talk to all of the folks running for, for mayor. And so uh, that's what we're doing, and we asked these folks to, to come uh, and join us for just a, an audio interview, and they very graciously said yes. And so today... We have uh, Mr. Tom Hoke, who is joining us here. By the way, can I, for the first about, I don't know, like month that uh, you were sort of in the race, I kept wanting to say Tom Hooch, uh, even though that would require probably, but then I thought you could make a, a connection with Marla Hooch from League of Their Own. And yeah, I, that's, okay. that's a deep reference. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so anyway, but Tom Hoke is here. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for being here. Thank you. Uh, so we've just sort of been trying to get started with a big general question of uh you're running for mayor yeah. and uh, presumably you have a lot of very particular things that, that you are looking at doing but why why mayor why is that the best place to do these things you were head of the the uh, hennepin theater trust and you uh, have been working in downtown minneapolis for a long time and made a lot of changes there why is mayor a better place to sort of execute this this vision that you have for, for the city? Great question. Well, um, having worked in the city of Minneapolis for many years, I uh, have a really good perspective, I think, on when our city is moving forward and when I think it isn't. And uh, as I was watching the city uh, from uh, Hennepin Theater Trust, it was my perception that the city is not moving forward in the way that it really should. And so I looked at that and I looked around and I thought, you know what, I think I can do something to help that. So I jumped into the race. So what, what's not moving forward the way that you'd like to see? Yeah, good forward? question. Well, there are a couple of things, several things actually that are going on that concern me. One is I don't see that we have a plan for the economic vitality of our city. Uh, when we look around at what other cities are doing, we can see that they do have a plan. Boulder has a plan. Austin has a plan. Indianapolis has a plan, but we don't have a plan. And you might think, well, do we really need a plan? We've been the home of Fortune 500 companies, so we're good. We're good. But the reality is is that times are changing, and when you look at an organization like Target, a venerable legacy company, Fortune 500 company, but they're facing some strong headwinds. What happens to us if something happens to Target, if Target should go away or Target should be acquired? What happens to us if a General Mills should go away or be acquired? What happens if Best Buy 
it goes the same way. And so my thinking is really, how do we plan for the future? Because, because now is the time to actually lay out a plan for the future rather than waiting until one of those things happens. So is the plan to uh, destroy Walmart and blow up Amazon? <laughs> no, 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 no. Because the reality is, is that that's the marketplace. And that is, of course, you know, what is, is challenging those those particular companies, but is actually to think about where could we play and win and be successful. Maybe you could say a little bit about these other plans that uh, other cities have and and sort of what you've looked at at those that are appealing to you and what you you sort of want to replicate to some degree. Yeah, happy to. Well, it isn't. It's it's less about replicating and more about appreciating the importance of a plan. So when we look at Boulder, for example, Boulder is working in this um, natural organic food category. And what they've done is they've aligned a lot of resources to help grow that particular sector. That seems sector. so Boulder. Just, I, know, I, mean, I know, yeah. And but Way to play to stereotype Boulder. <laughs> and, so, yeah, and so they're really being successful and they're in attracting venture capital and they're attracting entrepreneurs from outside of Boulder. So that's just one example. I'm not suggesting we be like Boulder. I'm just saying they have a plan. They've popped up on the national stage and people know about them. You could shift our focus over to Austin, Texas. Now, many of us probably know people who live there or who have moved there because they think it's exciting and a great place to be. Well, much of you know the um, vitality of Austin grew out of South by Southwest and started as a small live music festival and has grown into an international festival that has extended beyond solely uh, live music and now includes art and culture and technology and creative thought, film, the future. And what that has done is it's provided a great platform for showcasing the talent that exists in Austin. And one of the ways that that played, well, a couple of the ways. Producers note, we had a minor technical difficulty right here, but we got the interview going back right away. We were, so we were talking yeah. about, about Austin. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about yeah. that. And, talking and, about Austin. And what that has done in terms of growing from a live music you know, festival over a weekend, essentially, to, you know, uh, one that is a global force now and has art and culture and, and technology. And it has really uh, helped create a vibe in Texas. It's been a great source of employment for people there, but also created this vibe. And now we see that companies like Google and Apple want to be part of that. So yeah. it's attracted jobs to that particular part of the country. The, the South by Southwest one is is uh, challenging. I, and I want to talk more about uh, some of the these sort of big event type things. I mean, one of the, the downside people point to with Austin is that it's growing at something like 20%, uh, you know, a year over year. And it's leading to rapid gentrification yeah. in a lot of places where the folks, as you were saying, like the people who are actually there are getting pushed out in a lot of cases. So, you know, a lot of, is many, I guess maybe a way to frame this in terms of Minneapolis is Minneapolis is growing. Is it growing fast enough? Do you want it to grow faster? And then how do you balance that? Well, well, it wasn't so much about growth as ensuring that we have the goal here is to ensure that we have good paying jobs for everyone in our community. That's the lens that I apply sure. to this. So, And what I'm trying to point out is that when other cities have plans in place, that can be an outcome. Now, of course, growth entails other repercussions, right. and one has to plan for that. And we see it in Minneapolis with the gentrification that's happening. I mean, that shows up in, in a lot of ways, one of which is our affordable 
housing crisis that we have right now. So, uh, and I want to talk about affordable yeah. housing, but I do want to, uh, I, I still am trying to put uh, meat on, what is it, what does this actual plan look like? Because there have been plans before to have a yeah. festival or to, you know, grow the city X, Y, or right. Z or whatnot. So what, what does the right. plan look like? So, well, let me, let me clarify for a minute that, first of all, I'm not talking solely about festivals. I was using sure. South by Southwest as an example right. of how they showcase the talent there. So when I look at the things that we could, could participate in, where we could lead, the, you know, I tend to look at areas where we currently play because mm-hmm. I feel that those are great areas, areas where we could win. So one of those is food. food. Now, yeah. we have a mill district. We have a history. Yeah. In food, we are primarily an agricultural state. So we have a supply of food and we have a market. We have we're going to have in the next ne- decade 9.8 billion people living in this world. Oh, I thought you were about to say Minneapolis. I was like, wow, that yeah. is optimistic <laughs> for growth. Yeah, right, right, right. We're going to have all those people here. Yeah. <laughs> there won't be any. That, that'll be, be some serious density. Um, yeah. But 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 you know the, that's an opportunity for us, and we we do some of it now. But you probably are aware of the large number of food entrepreneurs that we have here in Minneapolis, and either you you've seen through uh, Grow North Men or uh, Midwest Pantry. They are working with small entrepreneurs to help them grow and be successful. So, like and the tagline for the city could be like hungry. Come to Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Yeah, absolutely. So, or feeding the world. Feeding the world. So again, but so what is the actual plan to make that happen? Look like yeah, I, yeah. What's so, the role so, of the yeah. mayor to make that plan? Well, the mayor's a convener. Okay. The mayor, the mayor doesn't. You know, the city doesn't underwrite all of that, but the city is a convener and brings focus to the conversation. So, bringing in not just the CEOs of these large food companies, but also bringing in the University of Minnesota and bringing in their food entrepreneurs and bringing in our growers to make sure that we are aligning all of the resources that we need. You know, in I'll say in a silo essentially, so they're all working oh, together. Oh, that's a good pun. Silo, yeah, yeah. Uh, grain. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And that came naturally. Yeah, <laughs> but but in li- aligning all of that because that's going to both give focus to it, it's going to bring resources to where they're needed, and it's going to attract outside investment to make sure that we are able to grow. And what I, what I think about this is that as we look down the path, we should be trying to grow the jobs that we want as opposed to waiting for the jobs that we get. Sure. And – so the, that's one area. The mayor, the mayor convenes this group, and then, and then there's there's a plan. Uh, is it is it a PowerPoint? Is it uh, is it a big? I'm maybe it's a big a, whiteboard with a lot of post its on it. That um, might be a process, and out of that comes the exact plan. Who's going to do what? How do these connections actually happen? And then, as mayor, um, do you do you have a private police force to make sure people are following the plan, uh, or or, you know, or I just rely on my power of persuasion power of persuasion good uh that's probably less authoritarian um so uh this is that's that's good so you brought up affordable housing which is um a whole other can of worms that we should talk about so uh you've talked before about that minneapolis isn't doing enough on on affordable housing or whatnot so uh talk to me tell us a little bit about what the city is not doing right now that you'd like to see and what we would be doing 
under uh, a hoke administration. Great, great. I'm happy to. Well, the first place, uh, I think there is broad consensus that not enough is being done to provide a range of affordable housing options. One of the places that I would start is with the Public Housing Authority. Now, I know something about that, obviously, because I was the deputy executive director there for many years. But what is currently happening is a chronic underfunding of public housing, and this is both here in Minneapolis and across the country. In Minneapolis, we currently have about $127 million in unmet capital improvement needs uh, in our uh, infrastructure of public housing. So uh, the Public Housing Authority owns and operates 42 high-rise structures around the city, a number of single-family what we call scattered site homes and then some family developments. And if those aren't maintained, they aren't going to be able to provide the housing that people need. And we already have about a billion dollars invested in that infrastructure. So we, that my first place to look is to see what we can do to maintain that infrastructure. Because if, let me give you an example, if a high rise were to become uninhabitable because we can't maintain it, what do you do? What do you do? Do you board it up? Oh, that's going to be good for the neighborhood. So now the moral issues aside about not providing, having not provided affordable housing for people, now we have a situation where we have a massive community development issue on our hands because it will suck all the energy out of the neighborhood if you've got this you know, 20-story vacant boarded building sitting in the middle of it. And so uh, specifically then uh, with the work of the public uh, housing authority, uh, is it increasing their budget? Is it giving them yeah. new goals? Is it? Uh, I'm just trying to put some meat on yeah, that. What yeah. does it actually look like? Yeah. It, well, actually, there is a um, there are some formulas that are used to support public housing authorities. The public housing authority authority is really a federal program that shows up at the local level, and so it's an independent uh, agency. I have some thoughts about how we could better integrate it into the Tell us. This, that's what we're here for. Well, so actually, I think that we have we have the Housing Authority, which is really a, a, a huge, um, sophisticated property management entity ha that has a relationship with the federal government. And then separate and apart from that, over at CPED, we have a housing development program. We have people working on that. I think the two need to be much more closely aligned because I think as we look down the road to the provision of affordable housing, there are going to have to be some ownership options that include ownership by the public. What is, ooh, what is that? Is that like co-ops? or? Well, it might be co-ops. It might be straight out just public ownership, and it, it operates like public housing does, only it's locally or, or state-supported as opposed to federally supported. Mm -hmm. Okay, state-supported. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, uh, other things, though, as mayor, city administration, where how do you how do you start changing this? What looks different from yeah. the administration? Yeah, well, I think that's that's one. So okay. so because the city doesn't pay attention to public housing right now, and it houses thousands of the very lowest income individuals in our city, elderly, uh, disabled folks, and so we really need to make sure that we take care of that. Uh, secondly. You know, I would. I think that we need to take a hard look at how we utilize Section Eight assistance in the city. And there are two ways, primarily, that Section Eight works. It's either project-based, meaning the assistance, the subsidy to keep a unit affordable, is attached to the unit, right. or um, it is with the individual, and that's tenant-based. So it's project-based and tenant-based. You know, I would move more of it to project-basing because I think it's a easier way to a more efficient way to um, identify the affordable units and make them available to individuals. When we have, you may know that the city recently passed 
um, an ordinance prohibiting discrimination based on Section 8 assistance. And and I think that's good. I think that's good, but A, it didn't provide any additional assistance. It didn't increase the amount of Section 8 assistance. And B, it still means that someone has to get out and kind of fight for the unit. And as units go up in price, you know, they become unaffordable to Section 8 because Section 8 has a cap on how much it will pay. So it actually didn't necessarily disperse housing throughout the city. And what we could do by project basing it is that the city could take that on and intentionally decide where the housing is going to be and not force tenants to have to fight that battle. Where should the housing be? It should be all over the city. But, but in terms of implementing affordable housing, uh, nothing is truer than that the city cannot go this alone. We have to work in concert with uh, leaders throughout the metropolitan area because this is a fluid system, and people looking for affordable housing don't sit necessarily within the geographic boundaries of Minneapolis. So if an affordable housing development becomes market rate and uh, people are forced out because of the, the, the new rent price, uh, they're looking wherever they can to find affordable housing, and we as a metropolitan area need to be addressing that. So you touched on regionalism, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, but I want to just try and put a button on some of this uh, affordable housing mm-hmm. piece first, which is uh, you've talked uh, at length about uh, building uh, more, particularly downtown, and yet still trying to preserve Minneapolis neighborhood character and whatnot. It does seem like that's sort of just uh, eventually there's a collision course there where there's only so much we can build downtown. And you say, well, we want to have affordable housing everywhere. Uh, I, I've, I've lived in different parts of the cities. There's some parts of the city that, that kind of freak out when affordable housing is coming. Oh, you don't have to tell me that. I'm, yeah. the, I'm an individual who has actually cited public housing scattered site units in neighborhoods throughout the city. So yeah. I know very so well how what do you, you're talking then about. As mayor, like, do yeah. you just say, eat it, neighborhood organizations? Or I don't know, uh, how do you make that happen then? Well, well, you know, yes, but the way that I would do that is I actually think that there is there is a growing awareness of the need for affordable housing and so that there is a growing receptivity of the public to, um, you know, to looking to the creation of affordable housing throughout the entire city. I think that there are a number of partnerships that we can make to help help us achieve that goal. One is with the faith community. A lot of churches, synagogues, you know, others, other institutions are looking for opportunities to live their faith, mm-hmm. and affordable housing is part of that. And so making partnerships with them is a great way to, to work with neighborhoods to open up the door to uh, all these neighborhoods across the city. So, I mean, that's just one yeah. strategy for what we might do. And is there an increase in the budget in, in doing some of these programs or whatnot? Do you spend more money on it? Yeah, I think th- that's a good question. Uh, you know, the budget is going to reflect our priorities. So absolutely, there's going to have to be more money put into affordable housing. And I want to go back to the regionalism approach yeah. because when we think about affordable housing and the need across the metro area and, frankly, across the state, I mean, it's a huge issue across the state poverty um, you know, and, and, you know, limited incomes are not, are not limited to urban areas. You know, there are some broad coalitions that I believe that we can form to help us articulate at the state level and be successful in securing the funds that we want. So this, that's great. That's a great transition into that regionalism question, which I, I do hear folks uh, kind of across a lot of ideological spectrums, as, as much as an ideological spectrum as you get in Minneapolis. Anyway, but... Uh, the they say oh i worry about minneapolis kind of becoming an island in certain uh, issues and ideas so 
how how does the mayor of Minneapolis both sort of lead and yet uh, build these coalitions or partnerships in the seven county metro that we live in, uh, in the uh, cities that all surround us and whatnot? How do we uh, sort of work together? And it's a very sort of vague question, but I think it, it's really important and it speaks to sort of we have a weak mayor system in Minneapolis in a lot of ways. And so this ability to sort of build partnerships and coalitions seems like one of the jobs that we're hiring a mayor to do. Right. Well, um, in all the work that I've done, that's exactly how I've gotten it done, is building broad coalitions of folks who can help you know, achieve the outcome. And I think there are a number of ways that you do that. One is showing up. You have to be there. You have to be participating. And the good thing for Minneapolis is that the mayor of Minneapolis is really viewed as the first among mayors. You know, you got the biggest city. Don't tell Chris Coleman. Uh, <laughs> well, he's a, he's a close second. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. We're okay. throwing down. Nearly uh, a twin. Okay. <laughs> but, but really, you know, I think that there is a desire for leadership and really um, – uh, cooperative leadership on a number of these issues and that that the reality is is that if Minneapolis isn't at the table it's a bigger problem and I think that the surrounding areas understand that so showing up uh, working in concert with people you know building relationships I mean trust is a big part of how you get things done and making sure that the, the our suburban counterparts uh, have a relationship with me and feel that they can trust me and know that I will help move the ball down the field and that I'm not going to, you know, do anything. I'm not going to hang them out to dry when the going gets tough, that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for them just like they're going to be there for me. So we talked about affordable housing. Are there other regional issues that you're like, this is where I would start in building this trust, this collaboration in the seven county or even in just surrounding cities? Uh, certainly transportation, you know, comes to mind. I mean, there are, you know, these broad issues, any of these issues that touch more than one jurisdiction, it's land management, it's water quality, all of these things are, are increasingly regional issues and need to be addressed in concert with our, with our partners throughout the metro area. Uh, I, this has gotten a lot of talk already, but one of these that where it comes up a lot is the minimum wage and the fact that Minneapolis is raising its minimum wage. Yeah. St. Paul might uh, follow suit, but the the region is uh, largely not there. So you've had you you've said both that you don't think that this approach has been necessarily very well done. You've pointed out that fifteen dollars is not even a livable wage. But I'm just trying to you know now that the city council yep. in Minneapolis has passed it and whatnot, okay. where are you? now on, on minimum wage and where Minneapolis, if you became mayor next year, would, would go with Sure, that. good question. Well, we've got a fairly lengthy uh, phase-in period you uh -huh. know, for, the, for the minimum wage, and maybe that'll take care of some of the uh, initial concerns that some of the uh, businesses and nonprofits had around that. The, since it is now the law of the land, if you will, right. you know, the job of the next mayor is to ensure that it is fairly and fully enforced and to ensure that when the annual reports are done, because the ordinance requires that there be an evaluation, to make sure that that's accurate so we have a good reading on what's really happening. So because you wouldn't try and undo it or no, ask the council no, huh, to change no, it? No, absolutely well, I, not. The, the city's actually being sued right now over the minimum wage. Would, you still would the city defend that lawsuit if you were mayor? It's the law. It's the law of the city, yes. Okay. Um, 
Well, then how, going back to our regional question, do you try and, I mean, since you yourself had a lot of these concerns about the process, how do you start to bring around some of the other surrounding cities and uh, whatnot to, to follow suit if you think that that's the right thing to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that we start the conversation with minimum wage. I think the conversation, I think that there are broader areas of consensus right now, such as affordable housing, such as transportation, and those are the areas where I'd begin. It isn't that minimum wage isn't important. It's that there are issues where there's some commonality right now, and if we want, it, this is about building relationships, so we look at, at the, common, the common interests as right. we build those. Would would I saw uh, would uh, would minimum wage uh, like I, I don't because I, that that's one of the concerns again I hear from even folks who are sort of supporting fifteen dollars they say uh, it does make me a little nervous that we're the only city maybe that's doing it it would be better if you know St Louis Park and uh, St Paul yeah of and course it would. and so but yeah, yeah, but, uh, but you're saying that that wouldn't be sort of a, a top priority to try and in that regionalism conversation that there's these other things first? Maybe? I think there's other things first. Yep. I think that's exactly exactly where it's at. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So let's talk about uh, uh, more general, you know, a lot of folks are pointing to uh, $15 minimum wage as a poverty reduction piece. Uh, again, I, I, without putting, it seems like you're maybe skeptical that that is uh, the best way to sort of maybe reduce poverty in the city or whatnot. Is that fair? Well, I think it's fair to say that we have no idea how this is going to play out. We have no idea who it's going to lift out of poverty. It, we have no idea how it's going to play out, whether there will be fewer jobs or the same number of jobs. We just don't know. And so what I'm saying is that in terms of looking, how do we grow good-paying jobs for the future, going back to that whole jobs conversation, that's where my primary focus is because what I'd really like is for the people of our city to be making $30 an hour. Now that is really something because it solves a whole lot of problems for the individual and for the city. Follow-up question, how do we get people to make $30 an hour in Minneapolis? Yeah, so, well, first of all, uh, education and training you know, is a big component there. Now, first of all, we have to have the jobs that pay that, okay? So we have to have a plan for how we get there. But in terms of how we get individuals ready, education is key. Now, I'm a former Minneapolis public school teacher, so I know a little something about education. And, you know, the job of the mayor is to make sure that he or she is doing everything they can to prepare students for school so that when they arrive in kindergarten, they're ready to go. They have their basic skills. We have... We have um, uh, gotten them when their brains are developing at age three, mm -hmm. that we have families that have sufficient nutrition, that they have stable housing. Now, long term, the best way to do that is to ensure that families have enough money, that they have good paying jobs that enable them to feed their kids, have stable housing, and make decisions about where and how they want to live. In the interim, we need to make sure that we're moving people as quickly as we can into the jobs that we have available right now. Because there are jobs that are available now. I don't mm -hmm. happen to think that they're the jobs that will be here forever. But in the interim, we need to make sure that we move people into the jobs right people now. People have so. a dim view of that buggy whip factory down on Hennepin. Um, <laughs> but uh, so how do you actually do that? Uh, I, I mean, you move it. I, everybody's going to say, yes, I want to move more people into good jobs. I, that, well, we're doing some of it. Yeah. We need, you know, I mean, you know, partnering, you know, having a deeper partnership with Hennepin County that's doing a lot through their Pathways program right now. And they're working, you know, with Lewis King 
you know, on Olson Highway. I mean, really, do more. I mean, that's the answer, do more. The other thing is that we need to be sensitive to, you know, what we have done in the past in terms of our incarceration rates and who's been incarcerated and the records they have mm. and how do we enable individuals who have you know, a felony history to move into gainful employment because if we want people to take a different course in life, we want them to make a different decision, we have to make sh sure that that decision is realistic for them. Is there a program or proposal that you point to and say that's a way to do exactly that, that you're, that you're looking at? Yeah, well, there are some nonprofits. You know, some of these, the city doesn't have to do everything. So when I talk about opportunities, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to grow a city bureaucracy around it. It frequently means that we are going to look for, for those entities that do a really good job and then support them. So sure. we have programs that are now doing a really good job, but they can't serve very many individuals. So they're looking at working with primarily African-American men and making sure that they are developing the skills and move, they have a housing component and moving into being self-sustaining. I'm just, uh, are there any in particular, just to sort of, uh, I didn't mean to do a pop quiz. No, I apologize. no, yeah, I just can't remember the name. Yeah, there's a great, uh, Thomas Adams over in um, South Minneapolis is doing a great Great okay. program over there. I just can't remember the name of it. Uh, one of the we did put this out on Twitter and ask folks what they wanted to hear about. And one of the things, uh, sort of in this vein, was about investment in the North Side, which is a, a huge issue. And folks say, you know, we can we can grow a, a lot of jobs, but if all these jobs are just sort of uh, potentially coming downtown, and uh, there's not sort of the investment in folks to bring themselves up within their own community. We also face a lot of these issues of gentrification that we were talking about. Absolutely. In the first place. So in a place like the North side, what's the, what's the Tom Hoke vision for that community being able to grow? And I would assume hopefully grow sort of organically itself yeah. as opposed yeah. to just sort of somebody else coming in and, right. and, or maybe that is the look, I don't know. Really good question. Uh, historically, and the city has has uh, tinkered with uh, the notion of how do we attract more investment to the north side. And I want to start by saying, when we talk about the north side, I think we need to be clear about what we're talking about, what geographic area we're talking about. Because it's the north, north side of Minneapolis, there is near north, there is far north, and those are different communities, and they have different different needs and different um, and different approaches, if you will, to ensuring that those are vital uh, communities that are a part of our city. As a city, we cannot have large sections of our city that are, are filled with poverty, um, with a lack of opportunity, that aren't served well by the city. That doesn't serve any of us well, so we need to make sure that we are addressing the issues that occur there. I have not come up with a specific plan about what we're going to do with the north side because I believe that that needs to come from the people who live there. And I, what I will do is I will set the stage for those conversations. But I do know a few things. One is that certainly as we think about near north, I think one of the challenges there is going to be in the near future is going to be a little less about how do we how to attract investment and more how to manage investment because it's so close to downtown that it would be easy for gentrification to easily happen mm. and so i think about inclusive development when we think about how we're going to redevelop the the near north side and having the people who live there who are most affected by the development drive the conversation because Gentr gentrification is a funny issue because 
Um, it, it's, a, it's a term that lacks specificity, really. What is gentrification to me might not be to you. And what I is think, gentrification to you? Well, yeah, that's a good question. So I would think that gentrification is uh, when redevelopment, when we think about it from in a redevelopment context, gentrification is redevelopment that uh, results in the exclusion of the people who were there. And that's what we don't want to have happen. And the way that we avoid that is to have the people who live there at the table because they, they will be able to tell us when gentrification, when we're going over the line, when it moves from rehab to displacement. So what, what tools then should, I, I mean, again, I, I don't think that anybody disagrees with the notion of bringing folks to the table. Uh, there's a lot of table talk. A lot of people like bringing folks to tables. It's a good, it's a good business to be in the table business these days. But I'm just curious. So what tools then does the city have potentially to, to uh, bring to the north side to, to help uh, address some of these things with the caveat that you don't know exactly maybe what folks yeah. in the north side will ask for. But I'm just curious, what it, what's in the repertoire yeah. for us to pull from? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. And there are some themes that emerge from my conversations. One is working capital so that small businesses can 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 get their doors open and you know and begin to sell their products so that 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 is one and certainly that's that could be organic to the community it could be small business operators people who live in the neighborhood that would be great and you can just imagine on west broadway that there could be these small businesses that the city has helped support um the other th so access to capital is one i think uh you know home ownership opportunities you know we have a lot of vacant lots you know hundreds 400 vacant lots on the north side how could we fill those uh, with quality housing and maybe interesting housing maybe green housing but how could we fill those and ensure that they are available to individuals who who live there or want to live there um one uh, other question along these lines that we and, and by oh, the sorry, I, by ahead. the by the way the you know, other things we can do uh, is make sure that uh, the infrastructure on the near, near north side and far north is treated with the same high degree of of um, particularity that um, others receive in other parts of the city because snow plowing street repair sidewalk repair is all all important to the quality of life in a neighborhood and when that isn't taken care of a lot of other things begin to unravel uh some folks asked about the question uh, of and and i bring it up because we were talking about tables and bringing folks to the table how do you uh raise up as a mayor and empower people of color to be part of these conversations and particularly i think within specific you know uh departments and a part of your administration and whatnot how how do you emphasize that um uh, I practically think, i think the way that you do that is you have an unrelenting focus on it and ensure that the top leadership of the city is reflective of the residents who live here um that seems pretty straightforward. That's yeah, unrelenting. That's uh so uh da, 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 da. let me see where where am I in my notes here? Um oh, policing. That's fun. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, let's talk about policing. So, uh That's you, an easy one. Yeah, easy. We uh <laughs> so we've um it, it's obviously something folks are are talking about uh a lot right now. You had a statement where you said that, you know, you had worked actually with Janae Harto uh, when she was back at the first precinct. And I've also worked with Rondo. And, okay. And so is this a good choice uh, to, to Rondo? Is yes. Yes. I, I think I think I, I agree uh, that uh, 
uh, Rondo should be appointed uh, as the chief of police to fill the unexpired term of Janae Harto. Uh, one, so it's it's hard to get into sort of a lot of the uh, the specifics with policing because so much of it seems to be uh, I don't know instance to instance or, or mm. uh, case to case. Uh, you have talked though about reevaluating uh, the training and procedures and uh, review and some of these kinds of things. I'm just curious what what would I, what would you want to see sort of reviewed or changed because I think. Some folks would point to Harto's term and talk about she she introduced this MPD 2.0, which mm-hmm. really made an emphasis on recruiting people of uh, very varied backgrounds and whatnot. So, what's not happening now at the city on the policing level that you do want you as mayor would want to see happen and would push for? Yeah, great question. So, when I think about a lot of things at the city, I think about outcomes, and I you know, think about what is it that we're really trying to achieve here? Because rather than, you know, sort of bounce around a litany of tactics, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, that are sort of feel good in that particular um, moment. Uh, What we should really be focusing on is the outcomes that we're seeking. So what I have said and continue to say is we're going to do regular surveys of the people of this city quarterly we're going to ask them about how they feel about their neighborhood and about the police department so the outcome that i'm seeking is i want everyone to say i feel my neighborhood is safe and i want everyone to say i have a high degree of confidence in the professionalism of the minneapolis police department now we say that across the city and we can be by the way we can measure and we can be transparent but it isn't it isn't that the same thing happens in every neighborhood because neighborhoods are different. They're organic. And so different tactics may be used in neighborhoods to ensure that we're achieving that same outcome. But everyone in our city has the right to live in a safe neighborhood. And we want to make sure that we're measuring that and that we're working towards it. So, you know, if you live in a neighborhood where, you know, 50% of the people say they feel safe, that's not good enough. And the job of the chief of police is to ensure that we are moving the dial up towards 90%. And it's the job of the mayor to make sure that that is happening that's so interesting and because you worked so long uh downtown where i always have this sort of uh annoyance where folks uh especially if they don't live in minneapolis or they don't live anywhere near downtown they assume oh if i come downtown on a friday night i there's probably you know a coin flip that i will be shot and murdered which is obviously not true but you're talking about sort of changing people's perceptions about their safety which seems uh, that seems like a really big lift because that goes into just sort of how things are covered and what people's understanding of where they are is. Well, well, uh, a it might be a big lift, but it's doable. Now, d- in downtown Minneapolis, for example, uh, you know, when I talk about the outcomes in neighborhoods, I include downtown in that. And we have, uh, last summer, uh, we experimented with, with a program called 5 to 10 on Hennepin where we actually did programming of the public realm. Now, it might not surprise you to, to, you know, I was running the theaters at the time and I was hearing from people that there were a lot of individuals gathered on the sidewalk and people felt intimidated by it and they were forced to walk in the street or whatever. And so I, we looked at that situation and, and started thinking about what could we do that would be different, that would change up the dynamic on Hennepin Avenue. Because when we really looked at the individuals who were gathered, what we found is uh, they were, were poor, they frequently had no place else to go, and this was a social outlet that didn't cost any money. And, and actually, Hennepin Avenue 
seem pretty safe. There are cameras everywhere. There are bright marquee lights. It's actually pretty exciting when you stand there. So, so we invite everyone to come downtown, and we can't find ourselves in a situation where we say, but we didn't mean you. So how do we make it open and welcoming to everyone? So we started programming this, the, the public realm. We built a soundstage. We put it in parking lots, and we moved it up and down Hennepin Avenue between 5th and 10th Street every Thursday night between the hours of 5 and 10. And what we found is that we could engage individuals on the street, and we had music, we had chess boards, we had a play area for kids, um, we had an artist market, and, and we tinkered with it over the weeks and we found that we could come up with a mix of programming that appealed to a broad range of people and you know what people sat down they played i mean theater goers would walk through a crowd of people and felt seemed to be perfectly comfortable Uh, individuals who were coming downtown felt welcomed and so it worked and so my thinking is that that going back to your question about how people might feel about coming downtown Mm -hmm. doing more programming of the public realm can change a lot of perceptions about the experience. One other piece that you've proposed is uh, that the arrest rate for violent crime should be increased by 10%, Yeah, which I read and I thought, that seems like it's a chasing numbers kind of thing. Uh, that, you know, it, it seems easy. We've all seen The Wire, uh, the greatest television show, and you end up playing the numbers a lot in terms of, oh, I just need to get my arrest numbers up or whatnot, as opposed to what you... I actually really like this idea because this seems to be addressing maybe more of the the root causes as opposed to treating, I, I don't know, the, the end result. Well... It- it, I don't say it just for numbers purposes, but part of individuals feeling that their neighborhood is safe is knowing that when there's a serious crime that's committed, something happens, that the individual isn't free to just continue to roam around terrorizing a neighborhood. So in situations of you know, serious part one crimes, you know, of fel- you know, felony crimes like rape or aggravated assault or robbery, you know, these are serious crimes. And, you know, my perception is that our arrest rate is not where it needs to be. And part of this is making sure that people feel safe in their neighborhoods. So that's how that number comes up. So it's not just to throw it out there as a piece of red meat for you to, you Hmm. know, to grab onto, but rather as part of an overall strategy for making neighborhoods safe and enabling individuals to feel that the the police department is accountable to them. And by the way, when we talk about the police, you know, the job of the police is, of course, to watch out for the welfare of all of us, including those we arrest. I, as a pescatarian, I'm not. I don't care about red meat that much. Uh, but uh, I'm a pescatarian as oh, well. Oh, really? For wow. like 40 years. That's it's great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I wish that we had a better supply of seafood here. Maybe you can work on that. Okay. I mean, uh, just to just to put a button on this, though, I mean, I, and I don't want to sort of do a counterproposal, but as a counterproposal, wouldn't it be better to say we're going to lower the number of these incidents as opposed to we're going to increase the number of arrests on those incidents? Well, well, I agree. And so when we talk about jobs, you know, what, what we're doing is creating choices for people. You know, I'm a believer that, that you know, while while people committing crimes are making a bad choice. We also need to be aware that that sometimes other choices aren't readily available. So my job as mayor is to ensure that people have lots of good choices in front of them. Okay, so we've got uh, just a couple last sort of uh, questions here. Uh, and 
uh, these hopefully are, but I, I was very curious. Uh, so you have this whole theater background. I uh, do. Brandon and I are both uh, theater folks. What did being in theater teach you that is valuable running for office and or being mayor? Great. That's a good question. So I, th- I think that uh, when, when I think about that, a lot of what I did was setting a stage for great things to happen. And that's exactly what the mayor can do for the city of Minneapolis. That's good. That's that's quick and brief. Um, uh, so this is uh, this is a, I have two last questions. So this one is just. I oh, thought you had one last one. I did. I, okay. I thought of one more that like people wanted me to ask. So uh, there's been all this talk, and I kind of want to just clear it up that uh, there's these these Facebook pages that are like anyone but Betsy or whatnot. People have accused that you're like behind them. So I'm just curious. Are you? Or I'm not. No, I'm not. Nobody in your campaign. I'm not. And in fact, no. No, 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 no. And it's, those are pages I actually don't even look at. Listeners at home should know that he was shaking his head when saying no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm not. You don't. And nobody, and you, as far as you're aware, nobody connected with right. your team is. Right. All right. So uh, our last question, which I actually really like, and I think it fits perfectly with your sort of tagline, which uh, on your page you have, outrageous action uh, is one of the things that you want to do. So we've been asking folks, uh, if you could, as mayor, take one big uh, action. Do one big program or thing, and if it didn't work, you could do a mulligan and just like pretend it didn't happen and it went back. What would you do that you? It's high risk, high reward. Just one. Sure. I don't know. You can, <laughs> how long do we have? You can do as many as you like. No. So you know, I think that's really interesting. I think. This is a little out of the purview of the mayor, but I think, you know, a top to bottom reexamination of our education system, you know, where we have too many people for whom it doesn't work right now, and the, the opportunity to transform that into something that works for everyone would be amazing. That would be a, when you talk about a heavy lift, that would be yeah. a big lift, but it could be, you know, something where um, we get rid of standardized testing. Mm-hmm. And see what happens. And see what that happens. might be like a thirty-year mulligan that you know it'd yeah. be like Jumanji, where at the end they just go back and find <laughs> if it didn't work. But uh, yeah. okay, so yeah. uh, so a yeah. review. But I don't know. A but review feels that that's not not a, not a review. Here. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, I'm thinking about a a, um, a reworking, a, a, an intentional reworking of our education system. Mm-hmm. I think that could be, you know, it's the mayor doesn't run the school system. I totally get that, but I think it's so fundamental to so much that happens in our community, and too many, too many people are not having success there. Well, that is a that is a beautiful note to end on. So I want to thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us. Thanks. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, have a good time out on the campaign trail as much as yeah. you can have a good time, I guess, uh, campaigning. <laughs> I guess it depends on the person. People say, are you having fun? Yeah. And I'm like, most of the time. Huh. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. These were recorded live at Folklore. Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. 
If you want to find out more about the Theater of Public Policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net.